Let me open us in prayer and we will, we will get started tonight with what is authentic fellowship. Father, thank you for each one who's taken time out of their schedules to come out to this. Uh, this week is a little bit like a Bible conference. Some of us, uh, some of us were around um, long enough that Bible conferences, we remember them. Churches where they would have a speaker come in and and give a specific focus many times on a specific area of the scriptures, maybe one book or, or maybe one theological uh, area of focus. And Father, this week, our desire is to listen to you. Uh, our desire is to hear from you and to think afresh on how our lives intersect with you and with your word and with each other. Authentic fellowship. Father, we know that there can be a, a light kind of fellowship around a coffee cup and a nice visit talking about the yard and the weather and whether or not you're going to aerate your lawn. But Father, what we're really after this week, our prayer would be that your Holy Spirit would encourage us and inhabit us in such a way that our affection for connection increases. Our affection for connection with you and with your people Lord, where we actually find that we just needn't live an isolated life and that we needn't stay the way we once were. Father, the majority of the people in this room right now, the vast majority of them are people who have taken part in ministering to others. They've been ministered to themselves, but they already have a heart for ministry. And my prayer would be, Father, that you would use tonight to uh, let all of us examine ourselves just to see is there one area of my authentic fellowship that you are trying to stir up? I know you are in mine. And so I just pray, Father, that uh, your spirit would teach us, that you would lead us, and that you would make this time profitable tonight as well as the rest of the week. We give you thanks. We do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, grab a seat if you haven't yet. And a notebook. The, somebody should have given you a notebook when you came in, and that notebook has some basic issues related to the week. I won't go into those right now, but we encourage you to read those on your own time. Um, you'll also find that on the tables each night when you come in, there will be handouts for the discussions that are going to take place uh, that particular evening. And when you're in other classrooms, for example, Across the hall, uh, tonight is the only exception to this. Tonight across the, I mean, every other night across the hall, there will be a session in that room uh, as well as a session in this room. And you'll, you'll see signs about that, and I think it'll make itself more plain as the week goes on. But um, there will also later in the week, I think it may be Saturday, we'll also be using the room at the end of this hall, which we would call our choir room. Um, but... In this particular room, we'll be here quite a few times this week, and we would ask you to just keep your eyes out for those handouts because we think they'll be, they'll be quite helpful to you. Let me just uh, start out by telling a story. This is a story that uh, started a little over 45 years ago where... Uh, four guys who were all 18 years old happened to end up at the same Southern University. And at that university, they just decided, why not have a Bible study? And uh, 
That wasn't terribly common. I, I don't know about when you were in high school or when you were in college. I don't know how common it was for four guys to get together for a good purpose, but certainly in my experience, uh, it was a non-existent reality. But I remember that these, uh, these guys, one was a Presbyterian, one was a Southern Baptist, one was a Methodist. The last guy was from something called a Bible church. And a year later, those same four guys decided to do their Bible study again. This time they added another Presbyterian, two Catholics, a Lutheran, two guys from an African-American church, an Episcopalian, another Southern Baptist, another Methodist, and one more guy from that thing called the Bible Church. Besides the fact that one of the guys was Earl Campbell, uh, later Heisman Trophy winner, some of you who follow college football, and later an all-pro and Hall of Fame football player, apart from the fact that he was one of the guys in the group, and apart from the fact that it was through that group that I became a Christian as a freshman, uh, the thing about that particular group that stands out to me is that these guys were from a lot of different backgrounds, religiously and personally. And what they really did was they came together in simple friendship, rooted in the gospel. They were wrapped in God's word. And they were strengthened daily by meals, by laughter, by prayer, and by sharing one another's burdens. In fact, three years after those guys started that first Bible study, without any directors, without any ministry heads, without a local church pastor telling them what to do, three years after they started that first group with four guys, it had spread out to a total of seven Bible studies involving over 75 men and women, many of whom, like, like me, were new Christians. There was something about what was going on that was so simple but so galvanizing. It, uh, it just impacted people who came in touch with it. With that story as a backdrop, I want to read a brief passage of scripture to you that you'll see in your notes. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 41 through 47. So then, I'm going to start in the middle of the story. Obviously, it's a long chapter, but whenever you hear so obvious that whatever's happened just before is very significant. But so then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and began selling property possessions and were sharing them with all uh, with all as anyone might have need day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved I'm going to say that that particular passage 
is as good a picture as we're going to get of authentic fellowship. And I see at least five things that stand out in that passage that I think stood out in the experience I had as a young Christian, which I think are a great thing for us to think about at the beginning of a week like this. The first thing that we read said in verse 41 that they gladly received his word. They gladly received his word. Well, what word? Well, it was this word he had just been preaching, Peter being the he. He had just been declaring with proof, with evidences, that the Messiah promised from long ago the Christ whom God had begun prophesying and telling us about all the way back in Genesis that he was Jesus and Jesus was that Messiah. And he preached this to people who seven weeks before had been part of crucifying him. So what he preached was a very convicting message, but it was also a liberating one because we see what the fruit of it was. The convicting part was this one you crucified is the Christ. The liberating part was, hey, he's the Christ. In other words, you, you did an awful thing here in what you did by nailing him to the tree, but I've got good news. He really is the promised one. He really is the Savior. And, and that first thing that happened when they when they heard this, was this group of people gladly received his word. Um, it, it actually says they, one version says they were pricked in their hearts. Well, what that means when somebody receives the word, when someone is pricked in the heart of the gospel being preached, what it means is they're saying, oh no, he really is the one. He really was the Savior. And I took part in putting him on the tree. Of course, if you're a Christian tonight, and I would just expect that we have every reason to believe that everybody here in this room would be a, a Christian. If you're a Christian, you too, like I did, also put him on the tree. So really that convicting message of the fact that he was the Messiah is as convicting for us as it was for them. Because we put him on the tree. My sins put him on the tree. Your sins held him on the tree. But when they believed that, they also realized that there was something good about this. There was something deeply good about the fact that Messiah had come. In response, they asked Peter what they should do. You know, back... Back a few verses earlier, after he told his story, they listened. Just switch. I just uh, flew pages and didn't realize I did. Excuse me. Verse 37, when they heard this, when they heard that, that God made him both Lord and Christ, this very Jesus whom you crucified. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent, each one of you, 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So, of course, they, they obeyed. They followed that. But what this group, what this passage tells us, this wonderful picture of authentic fellowship tells us, is that what they first had in common was they believed the gospel. They believed they were a sinner. They were believed they deserved God's judgment, and they believed that Christ took their judgment for them. And they accepted this offer of eternal life. That's what they had in common. And for some of us who have been Christians a long time, that sounds like such an old, long-ago story that sometimes we can grow dull of it. But the reality is all true authentic fellowship starts with the amazement of the grace of the gospel of God. So if you or I are going to enter into authentic fellowship at whatever setting you're going to do it, whatever, wherever the setting, whether it's over a, a lunch that you share with a friend, whether it's somehow with somebody at work or or any setting, a small group where you enter authentic fellowship, it will always have as its core, the, the, the core identity, we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. That there will, in other words, such a group of people of authentic fellowship will always be marked by gratitude and by humility. See, that's what happened to this group of people. We're going to read some neat things that happen in their life in just a moment, things that are very attractive, and we'll see how attractive it is. But where we've got to start is where it started. They were not able to do anything else we read in this passage apart from one thing. The gospel was proclaimed, and they believed. By the way, that's what happened in my little Bible study I was a part of. Four guys the year before I came to school, 12 the year that I was part of it. And then two other groups started that same year. And it was hearing those guys, as we went through the scriptures together, presenting the simple and plain gospel that this man's ears were able to hear something that I had first asked a priest when I was seven years old. How can we know that we would get to heaven? And so for the first time, just a couple of normal college guys, 18, 19 years old, were able to declare to them what the scriptures said. Here's how you know. Read what it says. So the authentic fellowship that you have in your home or in your small group or in your one-on-one -on -one will always start with that. If you, do, if you ever get involved in something called biblical counseling, either as a counselee or as a counselor, to be biblical, it's going to start with the fact that we are saved by a gracious, mighty God who's seen all of our sin. And because of that, I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend because he saw right through it all. And he let his son die for all of it. And he took me on as his own daughter, his own son. So that's, that's the first thing that I see in this passage. The second thing that I see, I think I see in verse 42. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what was the first one? Well, it's that they had heard and were pricked in the heart. They had gladly received what he had said. That's the first thing. But the second one is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Uh, you know, we, we know that at this time the New Testament had not yet been written. We know this is probably around 29 or 30 A.D. And none of the books of the New Testament have been written 
but they began devoting themselves right away to what the apostles taught. Well, what did the apostles teach? Well, they taught what, what Jesus had said when he was here, because they were with him. They taught what Jesus did while he was here, because they were with him. They, they taught some of the little aside comments that he made, things that maybe only three of them or four of them would have seen, but they shared it because it was teaching from him. Their teaching was his teaching. They pointed back to the Old Testament because the Holy Spirit was making them aware, oh my goodness, that's what it meant back in Isaiah. Oh, that's what he was getting at when he gave the prophecy to Judah back in, in uh, Genesis 48. They, they began recognizing, the Holy Spirit helped them see, do you realize this Jesus whom you walked with for the last three and a half years? Look at how much of the Old Testament was just talking all about him. Just like those men on the road to Emmaus. You remember uh, those guys at the end of Luke's gospel who are on the road to Emmaus and Jesus post-resurrection comes alongside them and asks them what they're talking about. And they say, oh, haven't you heard? Oh, this Jesus whom we really thought was the one from God. He, he did marvelous things and taught marvelous things and they don't recognize him. And it says, beginning with the beginning with Moses and the prophets, he declared everything to them that the scriptures had said. Now, it's interesting because it wasn't until dinner that it says their hearts were burning and he disappeared. They realized who it was. But I've always thought my favorite Sunday school lesson that I would like, I would love to get a video of it when we get to heaven. I'd love to hear what Jesus told them. I mean, we know because we've got the Old Testament, and we, but it would just be so cool to hear it from Jesus. But when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles were teaching about what was going to come in the future that the Holy Spirit was revealing. They were talking about what the Holy Spirit had done in the past and how the Old Testament was just a, a road pointing to the person of Christ. They talked about what he had done, what he had said. They basically taught our New Testament. So I'm going to say the second thing that our group the second thing that our group did that I happen to also see in this passage and you know, it's just God's grace. We devoted ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We read the scriptures. We tried to understand how they applied. We asked pastors or other gifted men and women who knew more than we did, hey, what do you think here? What's going on here? What Help us understand. So the first two things that your authentic fellowship will always be marked by, I believe, are the same two things that were the first two things authentic fellowship in Acts 2 was marked by. It'll be the recognition that you were bought with a price and you never deserved it, but he poured his grace out on you and he saw all of your sin and he said, I'm going to make you new and you believed it. And that should make you always have hope. When you get together with somebody to pray for you because you're brokenhearted or ashamed or struggling, it should never break your heart. I mean, it, it does. We, we do get our hearts broken, but at one level, there should never be that sense of, how many times in my life have I felt despairing? I can't count. How many times I have lost confidence? Oh, I would say I'm not losing confidence in God, but I'm losing confidence in any role I could play with him. But if I was just remembering what I was saved from, if I would just remember what he had done, I would never have to go there. There is never a reason for a Christian to despair if she is really aware of the grace of God. 
if he is aware of the grace of God. And if I'm devoting, devoting myself to the apostles' teaching, I'll continually be rinsed by that. And that, I think, is the second mark of Acts chapter 2 and the second mark of what we experienced. The third thing, it's also in verse 42. It says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And I'm going to take those together because this fellowship, this shared life, means that they were knowing each other. You know, one of the tragedies of today's church, and I don't mean Winchester, Virginia. I don't mean the church you go to or the church. I, I, that's not my point. It's just kind of what has happened with church is that many people think of fellowship as what happens between the car and your seat. Now, I'm not saying you can't have a nice, brief, three-minute conversation or that you can't take some friend over to the corner and pray with them. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying that for many, and hopefully not for you, but I just know for many, fellowship, this this. This Jesus-directed directed connection with another man, another woman, or few, where you're talking frankly about your life, and frankly about their life, and frankly about the Scriptures, it's often just not happening very much. I, I think that, I just think too often, you know, we rightly come to church. We rightly listen to the Word. We shouldn't forsake the assembling together as is the habit of, of some. But sometimes it's just, I get out of my car and I rush in, hi to two people as I walk, go in and sit down and hear, and then I might go right back out. But what he's saying is that the way that the church developed this authentic fellowship was there was real fellowship, a shared life, which was marked by a number of things, two of which were breaking bread and prayer. Um, I heard a story this last week that broke my heart. There was a man who had been part of our church for close to a year. He wasn't from Virginia. He wasn't from around here. And someone I know happened to invite him over for dinner. And he came. This couple lives alone. And they had a nice, what I would call fellowship. They found out about how they came to know the Lord. They found out about family. Found out what they did. They spent a little time in prayer. They were just being friends. The guy who invited him didn't think a lot of it other than it was just nice to have him. And as the man walked out of their house, turned and said, Thank you very much. This is the first time I've actually been in someone's house in Winchester. They've been part of our assembly for a year. And I'm not saying that, I'm not saying it's all us. I'm not saying that he mightn't have done, done something better to put himself in a position. What I'm saying is it's not the first or second or third or fourth or fifth time I've heard the story. I remember a dear brother, committed believer, a disciple, a true disciple, 
a man I've seen and shared the gospel. I've been with him when he shared the gospel with visitors to this church. I've seen him lead small groups. I've seen him be involved in the life here. And I remember him telling me one time that his gathering that he had every weekday morning over a cup of coffee for 40 minutes with some friends was frankly more genuine fellowship than what he often experienced at church. I don't think we'll survive if we keep that up. I mean, we might have a church. We might have a church building. But if we're not getting connected at the hip to somebody, somebody who can share their life with us and somebody we can share with, if we're not going house to house, I think we're going to cut off this huge part of the Christian life that produces maturity. I know biblical teaching is essential, and this church stands on it. And I know that from before I ever came here. My first contact with this church, Mark Carey and I, when I was in Houston, had a counseling practice, and, and he and I were talking about this possible position I might take um, about nine months before I actually came. And he and I did an extensive Bible study together for the next four months. I loved it. But I also knew that we could share life. I know my first time in Texas was visiting his house, from Texas here, was visiting in his house and staying there for four and a half days being snowed in by a March 22nd blizzard that Paul's laughing because he was there. And, and uh, he, he was uh, about a nine-year-old or so in the house when, uh, when I remember waking up to this just total silence of 14 inches that had already fallen and, and uh, a total of 26 or something that fell. And the only person who could get through those ridiculous roads was Charlie Richardson. I, and I, I don't know how he did it, except Charlie can get through anything. But, um, but I was there to meet the church. Well, good luck. You're going to meet Charlie. I, I guess that was the same as meeting the church. But, um, but we had some fellowship there. And folks, if you're not getting to go house to house, if you're not getting to have break bread, if you're not getting to share in your life where your life really is, I can promise you that the maturity that you were designed for will never happen. And what's more, you'll lose the joy you were meant to have. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy. I've had some people that I've had over for meals or who have had me over for meals or with whom I've shared or spent time who sometimes drive me crazy. Um, Mark Carey did a sermon years ago talking about the stone cutters. We all have stone cutters. I've been a stone cutter for a lot of people, uh, not the least of which would be Mark. Um, but I'm telling you, if you're going to have authentic fellowship, you are going to continue in fellowship, breaking of bread, having meals, and prayer. It's just going to happen. There were a group of us guys together, for example, who um, there are five men who, four others and, and, and me, who meet together and are the leaders of the biblical counseling ministry. We have a leadership team. And these guys help me. And I mean, I, I, I don't think I would be here if it weren't for them because they share the load. They're just tremendously helpful brothers. And uh, I remember the elders had directed us that when we do conferences, we have to turn it over to another team who is not necessarily part of our ministry. And a lot of us, mainly me, 
we're really anxious about that because well, what if, I mean, they don't know what we do. I can't give that over. But we've all learned from the scriptures to submit to the elders. So we're going to submit to the elders and do the best we can with that and just trust God. And along the way, as we were going, all of a sudden, we're in a leadership meeting with just the five guys. And one of the guys goes, hey, fellas, you know something cool? What? I just realized that some things we've been praying for for four or five years for this ministry are now happening just because of the way the conference is going to be directed by other people, by Mark Francis and a whole team of people who are following the elders' directive. Some things that we've prayed for for four to five years are now going to happen that we've never been able to make happen ourselves. And he said, let's just stop right now and pray. You know, that was a moment I'll always remember. But if I didn't have the relationship, I wouldn't have that. This continuing in fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers also really includes sharing needs. I remember uh, when I was back in that uh, Bible study, I was working, I was going to school and working, and I had this 67 Barracuda convertible, which I would not be able to buy today. <laughs> But it was a fun car. But uh, one day, I was a freshman, my water pump blew out. And it was going to cost me $64 to get a new one. And all I had at the time was $14. I wasn't getting ready to get paid for about another six or seven days. So I didn't really know how I was going to get around. But one of the guys in the Bible walked over and gave me a $50 bill. It was probably the second one I'd ever seen. And he said, here. Uh, go get the water pump. And I said, no, 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 you can't, uh, you can't do that. Well, I'll tell you what, wait, I'll get paid in six days, seven days, something like that. So I'll give it to you then. Now, of course, I wasn't bothering to tell him I was only going to get paid about $75. and I was going to need it for the next two weeks. So I wasn't sure what was going to happen, how my 25 was going to make it. But I had to, I would, I would definitely pay my debt if this guy was offering. And he said, oh no, you don't understand. It's a gift. I said, you can't do that. You don't have any more money than I do. He said, well, right now I do. I said, yeah, but you can't just give people $50. He said, watch. I said, you, a person can't do that. And here was my, my immature Christian pride, right? You can't do that. I mean, it wasn't that my parents never said, uh, my parents never said to me, John, don't take money from strangers. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, I just knew that you work. I said, you can't do that. And he said, I can and I will, and you're going to do it. And what's more, don't you ever try to give it back to me. If you want to give money to somebody else someday, you feel free. But this is from God. He just happens to be passing it through my hands. Some of you can nod your heads because you've seen it and been part of that. I never had before that. A year later, one of the guys in that Bible study who drove this horrible car, it was just a beast. Some of you guys would remember. It's a 66 Galaxy 500. It is as big as an aircraft carrier. I mean, really, they're about seven and a half feet across. They're ugly. Oh, 
I hated that car. And what's worse, it had only an AM radio. Why did anybody only put an AM radio in a car? And it was a bad AM radio. I mean, it was just terrible. Well, one day, John Ireland, good friend of mine, one of these guys who now lives in Richmond and, and uh, later became my best man. John, uh, John's mother gave him $500 for his birthday. I couldn't even imagine. I could not imagine somebody giving somebody $500 for a birthday. I was just floored. But I got excited because I loved him and had a wonderful plan for his life. <laughs> I knew what he needed. He needed a really good eight-track stereo, AM, FM, with CB radio that you could get together with new Pioneer speakers. The whole thing together would only be about $420. He'd have 80 bucks left over, and we would finally have something worth listening to. So I approached him within about a day and a half of his getting it. I said, John, if you'd like, I'd be glad to go with you and do some shopping for the radio that I'm sure you're going to need in your car. He said, oh no, it's, the money's already gone. So I wanted to go out and look in his car. I wanted to see what, he, what the radio he got. I said, what do you mean it's gone? He said, well, I got a Kirby vacuum cleaner. I said, what? We were roommates. We never vacuumed. This is a true story. This is exactly what happened. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it was for the church. I said, a $500 vacuum cleaner? He said, well, Kirby's top of the line. I said, well, golly, it ought to vacuum it for itself. I mean, by itself. I said, you spent $500 on a vacuum and gave it to the church? And he said, yeah. And then I realized that was his ministry. Every Saturday morning at 7 o'clock, he would go vacuum the church, and it had a broken vacuum, and he was tired of doing a bad job with a bad vacuum. So he used the only $500 he had, literally. And that's the truth. To buy a vacuum cleaner for the church so that he could do his ministry. Most of us kids in college didn't even realize that 7 o'clock came twice a day. He's out vacuuming. As I watched, as I watched Christ in a life rubbing off on people and new people coming to Jesus and new people giving. I found myself by my junior year of college buying a guy four tires for his Volkswagen bug because he didn't have the money and he was, they were bald and, and he had a hole in one. Really, he was, he was another roommate of mine. I mean, I wish I'd been with John at that point. I probably would have gotten something. But anyway, I gave Ronnie this. Um, this. And so... Um, and before I graduated from college, God had somehow allowed enough income and enough stuff to go on for me that I had been able to give two cars away to different people. I would have never done that. But what it was, was it was the love of Christ being poured out in the context of genuine relationships where the gospel was at the center, wrapped around the scripture, and outpouring in affection in the context of meals and prayers and care. Folks, that's the reason that we see the fourth thing that was in this example that we read. 
It says, after it said they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with all as anyone might have need. And then it said they were going in the temple, which is corporate worship, and breaking bread from house to house, meaning they, yes, they would come together with a large group of worshipers, but they would also break up into these smaller assemblies, house to house, taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. But notice this next mark, praising God. Why? Well, I can tell you exactly why we praise God from the time from October of 1974 on. Because I had found some friends like I'd never found and because God started becoming real. And because the word of God started opening up and making sense. And because my mouth, my language started cleaning up. And because I started seeing power to turn away from sin and because I saw life happening. It wasn't us. It wasn't the school we were at. It wasn't the individuals. It wasn't which four people started the Bible study. It was that what we had in common was that we heard the message and we were pricked in our hearts at the marvelous grace of God. And it made us want to follow him, which required that we wrapped our lives around the apostles' teaching. But it wasn't enough to do it in a clinical or student type of atmosphere. It had to be marked by life, shared life. It had to include stories. Like, like the time that uh, a buddy of mine and I took Diane, who's now my wife and was then a friend, 550 miles to a wedding up in Amarillo. And for the first 250 miles, I spoke nothing but Spanish to the other lady just because it drove her crazy. I forgot all about it. Diane brought it up a few years ago. I'd long forgotten. She said, John, I'll never forget how merciless you were on Shonda Whitmire. I said, what? What do you mean? She said, when you and Brett, when you drove us up for Brett's wedding in Amarillo and you and BG were in the car and you did this and you were merciless, I mean, all the way until you got near Fort Worth, you never quit speaking Spanish. She was going crazy. And I just started laughing. I remembered it. You know, when you break bread and you go house to house and you get to see people's lives, and you hear their kids, and you care for them, and they for you, there are stories. And in the midst of those stories are marvelous remembrances of the mercy and the power and the goodness of a living God. And the result of that is you can't help praising him. That's one of the reasons it's sad to ever go into a, a circle of Christians who sing and do it with a very timid group voice. That's why it's sad. Because we have so much to sing about. So we have this gospel that's at the core of authentic fellowship. We have this attention to the word of God, which is at the core of this fellowship. We have this fellowship that includes breaking bread and going house to house, sharing prayer needs as well as other types of needs. We have all of that. We have praising God, but notice the last mark. This is verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, having people added day by day by day, those who are being saved, is normal Christianity. If all you have is good theology, you will not add many people. You, you need to have nothing less than good theology. But if there isn't something about the infectiousness and the might and the glory and the goodness and the mercy and the approachability and the dearness of Christ, you won't see it. But these people saw it, and we saw it. God has this available. He has this authentic fellowship available for us. And I, for one, too often miss it. Sometimes I just spend too much time just doing my duty. Sometimes I just don't stop and take time to just have somebody come over or do something small that is off the books, that is off. And when I do, I always love it because it's what I would kind of consider that natural fellowship. They added to their number those daily. Diane's grandfather, Henry Wilson, I've spoken of before. Some of you have heard me mention him. He was so gripped by the gospel and by the scriptures that anybody I knew who knew him was just captured by the man. But one of my favorite stories about him, I've got all kinds of stories about Pawpaw, but uh, he was about four weeks from his 97th birthday, the last time that his, his daughter, Diane's aunt, saw him alive. He was being wheeled for surgery down the hall, and there was a nurse who had the stand with the IV holding it and pushing it, and someone else is pushing his bed, and Jerry is by him and walking, and Jerry's kind of holding her dad's leg, his foot, and she's just trying to talk with him, and just before Pawpaw gets wheeled into the operating room, the last words Jerry hears him say, because he never did recover from the surgery. He reached up and put his hand on the nurse's arm and said, hi, honey, what can you tell me about you and Jesus? His last conscious words before going under anesthesia, he was adding to the numbers. Why? Because I never knew a man who praised Jesus like that man did. When I one time asked him, I was in the middle of a very difficult time in my mid-40s, and I was wondering why he was so full of joy after his wife had been in a, first wife had been in a wheelchair for 35 years before she died, and he had to tend her, and he had another wife, and within four years she had Alzheimer's, and he was caring for her all the way till the end. And he had had another daughter go off and, and gallivant in ways that never should have been, And then another daughter who was a missionary but didn't have two nickels to rub together. How he could be so full of joy. 
And the shortened version of his answer was, you know, in the three hours God gives me before I have to go to work, I never quite get finished thanking him. Exactly what he told me. In the three hours that God gives me before I have to be at work, I haven't yet had time to finish thanking him. Something about that, a fellowship that was first with Jesus, wrapped around the gospel, devoted to the apostles' teaching. But that man went house to house. Every Sunday afternoon, Diane can remember growing up, whenever she would visit him, she said, we always went to the old people. We'd always go to their houses and visit people who couldn't go to church. She said, I remember going to the grocery store, and he knew every checker's name. And as he went through the line, he would always be asking about their 10-year-old grandson who had been in the hospital or about their 16-year-old daughter who had run away or whatever. She said, I just never saw him not connecting. But the story wasn't about Papa. The story was about Jesus and the fellowship that he offers his people. I just want to finish with this. As you look this week at this idea of authentic fellowship, I hope that one of the things that you should see through all of the sessions that we operate with and offer, that the gospel is at the core, that the apostles' teaching wraps around everything we do, that we want to connect with each other. The reason we have a biblical counseling ministry is because we know people are struggling like we do. Sometimes they're suffering. Sometimes they're struggling with sin. They know God is able to do more than what he has done in their lives. And they just reach out and say, is, do you know anybody who might be able to help me find what God's got for me? Folks, we don't have all the answers, but we know somebody who does. And so what we do is we just have authentic fellowship with them. We sit down over a table with a Bible and maybe a notebook to kind of write down things that we know we'll forget in a second. And we try to help them find where Christ is in it. And folks, I want you to know something. This conference is not about turning a bunch of people into biblical counselors. What it's really about, and why it has the title it does, is it's really about just getting normal people to have far more authentic fellowship than we sometimes do. Just more open before the Lord Jesus, more open before one or two brothers, more open in front of the scriptures, out of the earnest expectation that he will make me to be the man he wanted to make me in the first place. And he will make you the woman he wanted to make you in the first place. That is our hope. That's our pledge. And my prayer would be, our prayer has been, that this week, that God would speak to you somewhere, that his spirit would encourage you and prompt you and provoke you in a certain way that you say, I've got to have more Jesus, but I likely have to have more Jesus in the context of this community that he's called me to. Authentic fellowship. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful to you that you offer us life and that that life is with your son and that that life is one day we're going to see you face to face. I remember what, when Hansi and Betty traveled through here, uh, golly day, 24 years ago and hearing, overhearing Betty say, I look forward to seeing Jesus in heaven because I think the more I get to know him, the older I get the more I think I'm going to be able to say when I see him, I knew you'd look like this. Father, we right now are 
operating from behind eyes of faith, and that's just as you will it, because you get more glory that way. Your purposes are accomplished, because if men lay down bad habits, if women uh, pursue other people for the purpose of building into their lives rather than playing it safe, merely because they're convinced that the living God has called them to this more purposeful, more gripped life, then you will get glory and your gospel will be proclaimed and grace will be exalted. And we long for that. Lord, fill us. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, teach us your word. Teach us to love your people. And may that just be a, uh, an ongoing enriching experience for us to your glory and to our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.